Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn, and when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm gonna choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that at any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. Well, hello there. Ivana Tor is the founder of Thriving Physicians and Thriving Idealist. And she helps mission-driven professionals lead sustainably so that they can thrive in both their personal and professional lives. And she does this because she wants them to have a positive impact in the world without succumbing to disillusionment, moral injury, compassion fatigue, or that dreaded burnout that we all potentially face. You see, Yvonne equips leaders who are struggling with this feeling of overwhelm and overwork, this feeling that we're stuck with tools and resources to master themselves so that they could lead an authentically purpose-filled life. And in this episode, we talk about her own journey as a third culture adult who always pushed the limits as an overachiever. We learn why Oprah is a personal hero of hers, and we dive deep into the systems that she uses to help create accountability to ensure that us driver-type personalities avoid burnout. I'm so excited to share this one, so let's jump straight in to the conversation. Yvonne Ator, welcome to Inside Out. Hi, Billy. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing well. Let's get started with something I know you're passionate about, breath work. Right. Tell me why tell me why <laughs> breath work is so important to you. And the reason I asked that question is we just and I do this before every single episode. So anybody that's in a, been on my show knows that we spend the first 20 30 seconds breathing. I would do a minute, but some people aren't as into it as others, and I almost felt bad when you were you really got into it. You said that's a big part of your life. So why 
is breath work such a big part of your life? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> breath work is the foundation of everything. I guess it became really important to me when I was training with Mark Devine, who is a retired Navy SEAL commander, and we were learning about mental toughness and the big, uh, he calls it the big four of mental toughness. And number one is breath work. So being able to access your breath when you're in that fight or flight or freeze mode, right? When things are going crazy and I'm all about thriving, whether it's in chaos or, you know, whatever, wherever you find yourself being able to thrive and, and hold on to yourself and your equanimity. So the, a big part of that is breath work. So when you're in that fight or flight or freeze mode, which is the sympathetic nervous system and you're in a panic, it's, it's like either you're in a fight or you're going to run or you're going to freeze, right? Everything's a threat in that moment doing the breath work and really connecting to your breath then helps you shift out of that sympathetic flight or freeze to, oh, I just had a nice meal. I'm still alert. I'm fully alert. I have access to my faculties and my brain, but I am relaxed. And that gives you access to, you know, your problem solving ability, your create your creativity, your just to yourself. When we're freaking out and running around like a, you know, chasing our tails and running on the hamster wheel, like we're, you're not, we're not really accessing the best of ourselves. So breath work really, for me, helps me come back to come back home <laughs> when I've run out of myself and I'm out there in the future, running around in the future, catastrophizing or, you know, run, running back to the past and, you know, regretting and, you know, not ruminating on all the things that have gone wrong. Breath work brings me back to center, back to the present, back home to myself. Then I'm able to access who I am and my amazing problem-solving abilities, which I have ac no access to when I'm freaking out. So, <laughs> I mean, breath is everything. So it's it's a foundation of everything. If I can just come back to this moment, then I'm going to be okay. So breath really is is foundational. It's really yeah, no, it's the starting off point of everything. And let's face it, without breathing, we would not exist. And beyond that, I think it does center ourselves and brings us back to a better state to do all those things that you just mentioned, not least of which is being able to make a decision in an important time where you might forget to breathe or you might be in a fight or flight type of uh, modality. So you do a lot of things and have done a lot of things. You're a physician, a musician, a coach, a writer, an author, a speaker, an advocate, and a serial quester. All of those <laughs> things require a lot of you. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, I want to, I want to talk about. And I'm a mom. <laughs> Oh yeah. And, a mom, and I'm sure I didn't touch everything and, and a mom, right? And you describe yourself as the, as the quintessential idealist. Why do you describe yourself in that way? When I talk about idealism, the idealist, people think it's just like someone who's just dreaming and just like expecting the world to be perfect. When I say I, I'm actually trying to reclaim that word. When I say idealist, I mean someone who really cultivates their ideals and strives to embody the ideals that they hold dear. So it's actually, uh, I'm on this quest to really rec reclaim that word. And I believe that the true idealists are those who believe so much in their ideals that they're willing to roll up their sleeves and do what's necessary to embody those ideals and live those ideals. So when you hear people saying, oh, you're too idealistic, it sounds like you're you're just dreaming, you're off in la-la land and you're kind of thinking about this utopia and and expecting things to be perfect. That's not what I mean. So I mean, like, I'm really about what does it take to cultivate these values, these ideals that matter to us and not just profess them, but actually 
do whatever is necessary to embody them. Now, is it perfect? No, it's, it's a process. It's a practice of day in, day out, rolling up your sleeves, getting dirty, getting dirty, you know, and, and I, I don't know, I guess you didn't see my logo, but my, my logo is for the thriving idealist is this person with a plant for their hair. And so you're kind of cultivating this garden inside of you. And it's like taking the time to nurture, get clear about what your values are and cultivate them, find ways to habituate them so they become part of your life. So if creativity is a value of yours, not just professing it, but actually doing <laughs> day in, day out, again, not perfectionism, but day in, day out, finding ways to live that value. If connection is important to you, finding ways to cultivate connection in your life. So living in alignment, there's a quote from Jonathan Fields that set me on this path and, and probably is the reason why I, I live this way. And he says that, you know, when you, you know, live in alignment with your values, when you come into alignment, you become a beacon. <laughs> and that's pretty much like how I live where it's like, you know, in the work I do, helping people get clear about their values, these people who have gone into professions wanting to make a difference, and then they find themselves burned out is because at some point they've gotten away from the things that are important to them, right? Those values, and they've gotten out of alignment. And Brene Brown says that the space between your professed values and your practiced values, that space is burnout. And so when I found myself in burnout mode in medicine, I realized that sentence actually saved my life. And she wrote that sentence in Daring Greatly, I think. I think it was daring greatly. I went into medicine to help people. I, well, I wanted to be like Albert Schweitzer. I wanted to be this, you know, medical humanitarian missionary and spending all my, all my days doing paperwork, like 90% of the time, not seeing the people that I went into medicine to help, but shuffling papers and, you know, calling insurance companies and, and filling out the electronic medical record. It was like, this is not what I went into medicine to do. And so when you find yourself out of alignment with, the values that you hold dear, then you start experiencing that disillusionment, that disconnection, which then fast forward in the future leads to burnout. So that's what I mean by that. Like I'm really about not just for myself, but for my people, like really making sure that there's this practice, developing this practice of cultivating those values, really spending time, almost like a plant, right? Nurturing, watering, pruning out the things that take away that impede you from right living those values, rooting those out and watering your values <laughs> day in, day out, bringing some light, shining some light on your values, doing whatever is necessary, having support systems around you to help you embody those values, whether it's systems of accountability or systems of nurturing, whatever is necessary to help you practice living those values. So that's what I meant by that. <laughs> and so because of that, then all the fruit of my life and they end up being like the things that I care about because I've planted those seeds and I've really cultivated those values. So now the, the garden of my life is filled with, hopefully most of it, there'll always be the birds that come in and eat the fruit and the, and the gnats and the bugs that come in and eat away at the, at the plants. But for the most part, right, having the things that are important to me flourish in my life. Mm, I love the metaphor. I mean, and I love that that's a part of your logo too. It makes a ton of sense, this fertile garden that we could create. And it doesn't mean that it's not exempt from having uh, things that would come in and potentially uh, detract because yeah. we all have those things. So so question for you, I want to tap in on this dreamer part of you. And specifically, I want to talk about Oprah. I want to talk about this, how you <laughs> geek out on Oprah. Tell me why Oprah is somebody that you 
that you think of in, in a in a, a way in a, either a, you're you're geeking out on Oprah or dreaming oh. about Oprah. <laughs> Let me show you this picture. This one right here. Wow, that's so cool. That was number one on my bucket list for years. So not sure what part of my story you know, but I'm an immigrant. I, I was born in the UK and, and raised in Nigeria and came to the US in my teens. I'm in my 40s now. And I think growing up, the, the times that I spent in Nigeria and just how paternalistic it was, and it was a great place and it was wonderful, but there were very few options for what you could be, which are, and a lot of immigrants will tell you this, whether it's like Asian or African, a lot of immigrants will tell you this. Options you have are a doctor, a lawyer, accountant, architect, and engineer. Those are your five, your big five. Right. So if you're trying to do anything else, it's like, what are you talking about? Right. And Oprah was the first person I saw who was doing something that I felt like in a deep way that had in me, like she was like, she was helping people, but she wasn't helping people from the hospital. She was, you know, a humanitarian. And as a kid, I always felt like that. I always cared about the, the other kids around me. We were kind of middle upper class and there were lots of the times I spent in Nigeria, though we were surrounded by people who, you know, lived in poverty. You know that that big divide between the poor and the the wealthy, and and I found myself caring a lot about people dying from preventable illnesses, and you know the kids in poverty outside, outside, you know, outside my house, the beggars on the streets, and it was a place where, at least when I was growing up, where if you had mental, it was not unusual to see someone. <laughs> sounds kind of crass, but someone walking outside naked because they're, you know, they have some kind of mental health issue and they have no access to psych. I mean, access to psychiatric care is pretty much close to nil. So you have people outside. Sometimes it was, I'd see, you know, the crate, we'll call him the crazy man who's just walking outside, obviously in psychosis. You can see that he hasn't bathed for ages, but I would, I would notice those things. I cared about those things, but I never heard anyone talking about those things. So Oprah was the first person I felt like who made me feel like there were, you could care about people and you could do things in a way like that was different from what I was seeing. She just gave me a bigger lens. She just made the world seem more accessible and bigger, right? Mm. When you're from a place where, I mean, people and, and where my family's from, I mean, people dream big and all of that, but there are just limited, there are just limits to your dreams, right? There, these are the things that you, these are the only things you can do. Right. Make that money and, you know, take care of your family and all that. I saw I just saw her as the epitome of freedom, the epitome of impact and making a difference. She embodied that. And I wasn't seeing that around me. So when I came to the States and by the time I came to the States, she was pretty big, but I still was on this one track. It was just medicine and science, but I was multi-passionate and I felt like I didn't have the per permission to look at all the different things I was interested in. They were just kind of like, okay, in passing, oh yeah, sure. But not something that I could really take a look at. I just never gave myself permission to look at all the things I was interested in. Just seeing how she lived and and the difference she was making and and all of that impact. Just And she just gave me so much hope. There was something about her that made me see myself differently. And she just really connected to a deep part of myself. My mom would laugh and say, why are you so obsessed with Oprah? <laughs> you know, what's the deal? But she just, just, I think even the fact that she loved books, she just gave me like a bigger world to look at. And she just made me feel like I belonged to a bigger world than what I was seeing as possible for myself. So 
actually because of her, I did go to med school because she, because she gave me that sense of possibility. But then I started reading all of these books, you know, she really led the way for me in terms of personal development and just humanitarianism. When I was in med school, I did, I had my own HIV outreach organization and was providing the rapid tests. Back then it was still pretty new. Now it's everywhere. But back then in Eastern Carolina, North Carolina, there were no access, there was no access to the HIV rapid test back then. And I had my own organization. I was an Albert Schweitzer fellow and would go to soup kitchens and homeless shelters and, and homeless clinics and migrant clinics and just provide the rapid test. We went to people where they were, health fairs and like block parties and things like that. And we would provide the tests. And I had me and uh, it was me and and other med students um, and people from the community would go out and do the stuff. So that humanitarianism i i feel like came from just my the way i you know really loved and i still do really love oprah she just gave me she tapped into something that i think that was already in me but i didn't know i didn't see how that was possible so i mean i'm not oprah at all but i just she just inspires me so much to to see a bigger world um than what i saw for myself coming up Mm. But the impact she made on you allowed you to make an impact on others. I want to talk a little bit. It's not, it was literally 24 hours ago, almost to the minute that I had a, a, a good friend of mine, uh, who's also actually Nigerian. She was, she was saying with, with her, it was doctor, lawyer, or failure. It was like one of those three <laughs> options. And so I, I, I had a wider, I had a wider lens, but yeah, doctor, lawyer, or failure, really. <laughs> yeah. You had a couple more options, but the point being is, you know, as a as a third culture adult, you've, you've obviously with the England and Nigeria and obviously the States. I wonder how what I told her and I know I know you know this, but there is this over like Nigerian from what I know of like the Nigerian culture. There's this overachiever. There's this like <laughs> really this burning desire to see success in the children of Nigerians. Right. And it's and it's coming from a place of love. It's not always received that way yeah. because, because you have a limitation. You have, there's so many other things you could do. And to your point, your worldview widened as a result of Oprah. So I'm curious, culturally, how do you balance or how do you identify between the, the different cultures that you've been immersed in? You know, oh my gosh, that's such a great question and a very difficult one to answer because phenotypically or the way I look, I, you know, if anyone looks at me, they're going to see black woman, you know, darker skin and with locks and all of that. That's what I look like. But on just the way I came up and just the things out, even the music I listened to, like my favorite music, for example, is like classic rock, hard rock. You would never know that about me by looking at me, right? And and I can jam with all of the quote unquote boomers. I attract a lot of boomers in my life. And so the idea of home, you know, has always been a little bit elusive to me. Now I love my family and I've told my mom again, again I was like, I don't feel like Nigerian. I've never felt like, like I was Nigerian. Now I could pretend Right. I could do the whole third culture thing, which is like be, you know, camouflage and just, you know, be a chameleon and just go with it. But on a deep level, I never felt Nigerian and then I never felt English or British neither. I feel closer to American now, but there's still there's just it's like I feel like everything and nothing at the same time, which is something that 
is hard to explain. But the idea of home is very, um, it's just more like where my kids are. or <laughs> that's you know. But I'm still looking for home. I don't know what that is. But I will say, and so for me, identity was always a little bit more fluid. I knew what I looked like, but I never felt like what I looked like. A large chunk of that, though, changed in 2020. <laughs> Something about 2020 stripped away a lot from me and actually made me feel more connected to the African-American community than I ever have. Something about 2020 really made me start seeing myself differently because I realized that in my third culture nest, in my quote unquote global citizenship, because I've always called myself a, a world citizen, a third culture adult, a global citizen. But in doing so, I was kind of bypassing all the way, all of the experiences that were reflective of the African-American, African diasporan experience in America. I, would, I just found ways to kind of bypass them. Things were happening to me and I just was not talking about them because in my mind, I'm a world citizen. I'm a third culture person. I don't really fit anywhere. So, and I'm very educated, quote unquote. So, you know, like my problems are not a big deal. Like the things that are happening to me are not a big deal because I have a lot of privilege, right? I have an MD and an MPH and, you know, I blah, 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 blah. I have access to certain places and people that people normally wouldn't, but there were things that were happening to me. And because I was staying silent about those things, I was upholding <laughs> oppressive structures and systems. And so 2020 really, and I'm still in that on that journey, 2020 really made me start thinking differently about what I was talking about, how I was seeing myself. And then my kids, I have two biracial kids who for all intents and purposes are going to be seen a certain way in this country, right? Um, and my silence or just bypassing that is not just affecting me, it's affecting others around me. So I've started to think about things a little bit more differently, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Wow. I'm, thank you for sharing that. What an interesting, what an interesting thing to happen. And I'm curious, as you reflect and look back, we all do this. We either second guess ourselves or wonder what, what was I doing or why did I do the things that I do? Do you, do you have any regret or anything that is maybe causing you a little bit of uneasiness because to your point, you didn't identify in a certain way because you, you couldn't fit into a specific call it bucket, right? You couldn't fit into any one bucket. You were this global citizen. And so you, I don't know if you, if the word would be ignored or didn't, didn't, it didn't feel it as much, or I don't know what it was, but how are you emotionally handling this, call it this new version of yourself and, and that happened in 2020? How am I? <laughs> I'm still processing <laughs> that, that, that sign, you know, the computer sign, the circle that just keeps blinking is like, I'm still processing. I don't think I have regrets per se. I, I, I do have certain regrets. I do have certain regrets. One of the things that I used to do back then, I just didn't understand like the system because I didn't grow up here. Like, I mean, I've been here for 20 something years, but my formative years like a lot of my formative years were not spent here. And again, with this immigrant mentality of like, you just come to America and you just crush it. You just do what by any means necessary, 
right? I had scholarships. I had the straight A's. I was solid. Was it salutatorian in in high school? I've just always done like really well in school, and just I've just always been an achiever. And so I never really had an understand. I just remember this one conversation. I will never forget it. And Rishi, if you're out there, I'm sorry. I get it now. But I remember this conversation when I was in med school, and I was visiting a, a couple of friends in Chicago. They were at a med school then. We were all part of the AMSA which was American Medical Student Association. And this was like an advocacy, like we were really into advocacy, would go to the Senate or the House of Representatives, would go to Congress and just lobby about certain health initiatives, like healthcare for all and healthcare for children and all of that. Like we just, the CHIP, I think it was the CHIP, we got that passed and a lot of HIV and homeless health initiatives. Anyway, so one of the kids in that group, we were having a conversation and and he was talking about like systemic oppression and, and racism and all of that. And he is Indian. He was, yeah, he, I think he's either, I think he's Indian. Yes, he's Indian from India, but grew, grew up in America. And we were having this conversation and I was saying, you know, oh yeah, they just need to, you know, we're talking about, you know, blacks and, you know, just racism and all that, all of that. And I was saying, oh, just people need to work harder and they need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. And like, I came here from, you know, I came here from outside and I, I'm doing it and my, my family is doing it. And now whenever I think about that conversation, I just die a little because <laughs> I just had no understanding of the systemic structures in place because I didn't grow up here. I didn't I didn't see but it was they were still affecting me I just didn't see and to like say oh you need to work harder and yes I mean we all need to work hard but there are certain structures in place that no matter how hard you work until you dismantle those structures you're not going anywhere and I didn't get it then so every time I think about that conversation I just I just sweat a little bit because I just had no idea and I never saw him again after that but it's been over a decade and it stayed with me as just like, wow, you just had no idea. I think sometimes, you know, you don't you don't know what you don't know. And to just assume certain things about certain groups of people can be tragic. One of the things that for me I realized was, yes, I can feel like I'm a global citizen all I want, but if I'm on the street and the police officer pulls by, I get like he's like it doesn't matter who, whether I'm a global citizen or not. It's you know I have to I do pause and like I sweat and I you know I go through I have to go through my breath work to bring myself back in my body. The struggle is real with that one. Yeah. So my education doesn't. Yes, it, it gives me certain privileges and all of that, but it, it it's not protective. All of the things that I've done, all of the things I've accomplished, or I mean, it's just the grace of God, right? I could be in the wrong place at the wrong time or just be, just be, yeah, just be somewhere and something could happen just based on what I look like. So 2020, just the years leading up to 2020, 2016 to 2020, during a certain administrative, <laughs> during, during a certain administration really brought home for me certain things that I, it was a, a big reckoning for me. I really had to think about my life differently, about my kids' lives differently, and about the lives of those that I, other people I love um, differently. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. 
with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You know, that's, it's, wow, that's so f- fascinating to think. Let's just call it how it is, and some people might be offended by this, but the last four years exposed what was already there, but we may not have realized. Yes. And that that's, a, you know, I get chills saying it, and in so many different ways. I mean, that we could we could have a whole conversation about that, but I, I do want to I want to get into your to your superpower, which is helping people. And you mentioned the one regret, and it's so interesting to me too because I my first thirty interviews that I did, you know, a year and a half ago, I always ask people, "Do you have any regrets?" And almost everyone said either they don't have any regrets, or if they have a regret, it was a conversation or, or an interaction with another human being. All regrets in life tend to happen with how we treat or act toward another person. So I thought that was really interesting. I want to underscore something that you mentioned about high achievers, right? You're a high achiever and you work with high achievers. And the reality with high achievers, and this is where we get into your your superpower, one of your superpowers, because you are uh, the queen of superpowers, <laughs> is when we are on our quest to do whatever it is we want in life, the reality is we can get burnt out. And often we do it in an unsustainable way. We do it in a way where it arrives at a destination of uh, disillusionment, of frustration, of poor health. And the through line is it's unsustainable to do it in that way. So I want to talk about how you think about people who are high achievers who find themselves in a situation like this. What's your first step to help them? My first step. Uh, you know, every time I have a consultation with someone, the first one of the first few things I do is, first of all, what are your values? Like, what's your com- compass? That's the first thing I do um, to help them remember why they started this journey to begin with. Right. What's so I ask them, what's what are your values? Um, and I'll say, you know, what do people thank you for and all that? But the first thing for me, again, it starts with the values. Like if you're going on a journey and you stop following the GPS, right? And then you find yourself in Timbuktu instead of, you know, instead of Bali, then it's like, okay, where were you trying to go? Let's get back on the GPS. Let's get, where are you first, right? And where where were you trying to go? Which is, right, I was trying to go to Bali. Nothing wrong with Timbuktu. I love Timbuktu, but um, I was trying to go to Bali. And at some point along the way, I stopped following the GPS, or maybe the GPS broke, but most times it's like, you know, you stop, we, we get distracted and, or we get knocked off the, the GPS, or maybe the GPS is outdated, right? Maybe there were other alg- upgrades happening within you that were more important to you. You were still following the path, but you needed some upgrades. You needed to check in. And most times people who are achievers are in autopilot and they're just doing the thing and they're just going for it. But the inner GPS has changed. Maybe it's not as important to you as it was, right? So for me, it's like, what are your values? Like what, what's important to you? Okay. Now we're going to (laughs) compare like that GPS to where are you now? Right? So with that gap, right? Between the professed values and what's actually happening on the ground, the practice values, that's, that's burnout. That gap right there is burnout. So then we start working on bridging that gap. So one of the first things I have to do when when I'm working with people is the permission slip, which is again, because I'm certified in all of Brene Brown's work and positive psychology and unbeatable mind and all of that, 
a permission slip is actually a big tool that we use in Brene Brown's work, giving them permission, right, to bridge the gap. Like to go, to think about the life that you really, where it is that you really want to go. Sometimes people know exactly what, where they want to go and they know the gap, but to take a step forward, like they don't have permission, right? Because it costs you something. It costs you something to be able to give yourself permission to move forward and start bridging that gap between your professed values and your practice values will require you giving yourself permission to, for example, start discovering what's underneath the hood. Like what, what's, what are actually my values? Like what's really going on with me? What do I really want? Do I still want this journey? Do I still want this thing that I'm doing or giving yourself permission to, okay, take care of myself. That's a huge one with my people. Give myself permission to take care of myself. Give myself permission to ask for what I want. Give myself permission to even get clear about what I need. What do you need is such a hard question for my people because most times they're taking care of other people's needs, right? They're so good at taking care of other people's needs and going and doing the thing. And they're just an autopilot. And because they've trained everybody else to depend on them, no one's even asking them like, you know, what do you need, right? What do you want? They're so busy taking care of other people's needs and wants, they never pause to take care, to ask themselves, what do I need? What do I want? Giving yourself permission to want what you want, giving yourself permission to set boundaries and say no, giving yourself permission to say yes to what you want, giving yourself permission to maybe piss someone off by saying no. I mean, so the permission slip is huge because people, I think, know that there's a gap, but then you have to also be able to give yourself permission to fall apart and say, oh my gosh, I am not where I want to be and this sucks and, and start to, you know, and give yourself permission to cry, fall apart for a few days, whatever. But it's just so terrifying. So what people do is they just stay stuck. They just, they freeze, right? That fight or flight or freeze, you know, you're in sympathetic overdrive and that's post, that's traumatic. So you're in that post-traumatic cycle all the time where everything's a threat. It's a threat to look at what I want is a threat to stay here. It's you. So you're just, you're just stuck. It's kind of like, you know, when you're driving and you have done this a few times, don't laugh at me, but sometimes, you know, a few times I've tried to drive somewhere and didn't realize there was a divider or whatever. And then I drive over it and then I'm still, the car is stuck, <laughs> right? So you're just, you're just stuck, right? And then it's, what are you going to do? You're going to have to ask someone to help you, right? Push the car off the ledge or maybe you're stuck in snow or, you know, whatever. You have to be able to get help. And that permission to look at where you are, to look at what you want, to look at your desires and your needs is terrifying because then you're going to have to do something about it. And it's just much easier because then you'd have to start on this hero's journey. And we know the, the steps of the hero's journey, right? Because you're going to have to face the dark night of the soul and all of that. It's like, no, let me just stay on this automatic path, even though it's, it's painful for me. And this is just more comfortable. This is all I know, even though you're dying. So those are the things that the first three things that I find myself doing whenever I'm working with my, and it's, I don't just work with high achievers. I work with mission driven high achievers, right? People who really have that sense of idealism, who want to make a difference, who have this, who want to make a positive impact. It's a specific kind of high achiever, right? They will do whatever they'll go and get all the seven years of education if they need to, <laughs> right? They'll go and do all of the training and then they find themselves 
after all of that training, all of that sacrifice going, what am I doing? What am I, why am I here? You know, how did I get here? I've achieved all the things and I am miserable. What do you do when someone is at a crossroads in their life? And, you know, I know that you've had some crossroads in your own life. I know yes. it was very, you know, I know it was very difficult uh, losing your father, for example. Yes. You know, and, and, and I know, you know, at that point in life, you're divorced and even homeless at one point, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. So how did your own journey, your own crossroads call it or your own I don't know if it's a low point but but point in your life how did that inform the way you show up for your for your clients and the people that you work with oh that's a great question so I'm I'm one of those people right who I just everything looks okay with me because I am I'm, I'm for the most part bubbly very energetic I have just a lot of positivity just naturally so I look like I'm okay all the time right and so during my dark moments, very few people checked on me. And this is why I'm so passionate about helping those who serve because you're so busy helping others and serving others and you've trained other people that way. People don't think, how are you doing? Like you look at your leaders, like does anyone ever ask leaders how they're doing? No, <laughs> right? And so for me, one of the things that I experienced was that sense of, even though I know a lot of people, you know, I'll always say that, you know, I'm this, I, I feel like I'm lonely in the midst of people, right? So the deep loneliness, deep isolation, even though I know a, mil a gazillion people, because people were not checking up on me. Now, some people were, some of my closest people were, but for the most part, like I could go for days without talking to people, just super isolated and, or people f having a, a discomfort with my expression of pain because they're used to me being the strong one. It was almost like I didn't have permission to let down my hair and say I'm struggling because people were so used to depending on me. Thankfully, because of the, my serial questing and all of the things that I do, I would find put myself in situations where like with the Unbeatable Mind Coaching, for example, where like I'm surrounded by people who are strong and will allow me to kind of depend on them. So I had to actively start pursuing communities of practice that would allow me to, that were more heart-centered and would care about me enough to ask me how I was doing and didn't want me to be perfect all the time. So like places like Camp, Camp Good Life Project, which um, was run by Jonathan Fields and, you know, the World Domination Summit community run by Charlie, um, sorry, Chris Gillibo, um, the late Scott Dinsmore and his, you know, um, Live Your Legend community. There are certain communities and the Unbeatable Mind, you know, coaching community and all the different communities that started joining, being intentional about being around people who were doing their own work, but also cared enough to look at the other person and see how they were doing. So that was how it was for me when I was coming up. And then also really a lot of deep work into my treating my life like a lab and a lab for all the things I was learning. So I was like my own guinea pig and, and whether it's values or mental toughness and all of that, I was just this guinea pig and I would try all of this stuff on myself. Really, again, for me, it's about getting it in my bones and embodying the work. So I, I'm a super geek, super nerdy about all of this personal development stuff, but in a way that's like, how do I embody it? It's not enough to just know it. For me, it's like I have to get it in my bones and embody it. So Fast forwarding to my people and how I approach them, right? It's this sense of like, I am very passionate about creating a space where the strong person can let her hair down, her, her hair down or his hair down, where, you know, we're taking care of your needs. We're 
getting you to train yourself to ask for what you want. Very, very focused on like self-compassion. So really providing the support that I wish I had. So helping them create systems of accountability where they're being checked on, not just always being the strong one, but having ways in which they are being checked on. Right. One of the things I do still do to to this day is I have reminders to reach out for help (laughs) because I still forget. Right. I get stuck in my world and, you know, and I'm like, okay. so when I meet people, I say if I'm becoming friends with that person, I'll say, look, if you haven't heard from me for a while, please check on me. So I'm teaching people. So I teach my people this as well to teach the people in their lives to care about them and to actively care about them and check on them to see how they're doing. Creating that safe space is important, that empathetic and really focusing on self-compassion, really focusing on nurturing the nurturer, providing that support for those who lead. But again, really working on training the people around you to check on you, working on learning how to reach out for support, reach out for help, learning how to set boundaries. And I think, so those are the things that from my experience, from my own, I think just the importance of like, you know, really helping the strong one. Like the strong one is not strong all the time. The strong one has moments of weakness. And just because they have a lot of stamina, they can go for it, go for it for a long period of time. But that crash is inevitable. And so there's a really strong emphasis on that. Mm, I love everything you said, especially the self-compassion and the systems of accountability. I want to go in a bit deeper in that realm, because as you help these mission-driven impactors that are really making an impact on the world, to your point, who's helping them, right? They're helping everybody else, but who's, who's looking out for them? I think that's the through line of what you just said. And part of that is having that self-compassion. So, and, and the, and the systems for accountability. So what are some action steps to be more self-compassionate and what are second part of the question? What are some of those tools you mentioned that you have people who check up on you, but what, what is the instruction you're giving your clients to have those systems of accountability. Mm-hmm. So the first one, self-compassion. So using Kristen, I'm sorry, I'm a little bit of a nerd, so I, I will go into the work <laughs> from time to time. I really love Kristen Neff self-compassion work. If you know Kristen Neff out of University of um, Texas in Austin, I think, but she has the three parts of self-compassion. She talks about right? The three parts. First part is mindfulness, being able to pay attention to what you're thinking, saying, and doing in the moment. So, you know, you made a mistake. Okay. So what are you, how are you, what are you thinking about yourself in that moment as you've made that mistake or you've done something that you didn't really want to do, right? What are you thinking about yourself? What's going on in your head? You know, I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, You know, sometimes for me, if I've made a mistake, I'll go like, you know, get it together. Like, gosh, why did you do this? Right? All the things that you're saying to yourself in that moment, or what are you thinking about yourself in that moment, right? I'm a loser, whatever it is that you say to yourself or think about yourself. And then what are you doing? Are you finding yourself in the, in the pantry, you know, eating all the chips because you made that mistake or, you know, eating the whole cake because you made a mistake and had a bite of cake. Now it's like, oh, well, I have blown the diet. Therefore, I'm going to eat the whole cake. <laughs> let's just go ahead. Since you're going to go there, let's just go all the way in and eat the whole cake. And right. So how are you, what are you doing to yourself? Um, and so that's the mindfulness, like paying attention, 
right? Mindfulness just means paying attention to what you're thinking, saying, and doing in that present moment, which is why breath is so important because it helps you come to the moment when you're escaping, numbing, and all of that. So that's mindfulness. The second part of uh, self-compassion is self-kindness. So now you've noticed all the things that you're doing, right? Or thinking and saying and doing it to yourself in that moment. Now, do you stay there or do you take the next step of self-compassion, which is self-kindness? So being kind to yourself in what you're thinking, saying, and doing. So I notice that I'm like, okay, oh gosh, get it together. You know, you're such a loser and all of that. Being able to go, you know what? Like you've had a long day. You're really busy. The kids were didn't get enough sleep. So now you're tired and cranky and it makes sense that you're craving carbs. It's okay. Why don't we go for a walk, right? Or if so, thinking about, thinking, doing, and saying things that are kind to yourself or nurturing to yourself, going for the walk, getting a hug, petting the, the, the dog, eating some fruit, right? Something, you know, drinking some water, getting some nature, going outside for, you know, you know, barefoot, right? To ground yourself, going to the beach if you live in San Diego, <laughs> right? Um, going and looking at beautiful things. Um, what's self-kind to you in that moment? You know, what are the things you can say to yourself or think about yourself in that moment? And then what are the things you can do for yourself? All of which are kind and nurturing and gentle. Gentleness is a big word for me that I'm having to really work on embodying. Something I'm really cultivating because I can be really, because I'm so tough and sturdy. I can be really rough and tumble with myself. So learning to be gentle with myself, whether it's like with massages or like, you know, putting on lotion, but really being gentle and gentle with the things I'm saying to myself. And so that's that. Then you have common humanity, which is the third part of self-compassion. Now remembering that you're not some weirdo that, that just fell out of the sky with a horn on your forehead, <laughs> loser, but that you're experiencing what other people in the world are experiencing, right? There are lots of, you know, parents who are, you know, sleep deprived and, you know, maybe are frustrated about online schooling going on indefinitely and, you know, and, you know, just feeling kind of blah, like you're not the only one, right? And just remembering that there are other people who are experiencing that, or maybe even hearing, calling up a friend and hearing their stories about how they're struggling, right? Helps you remember that common humanity that you're not the only one who's going through this, that there are other people who are going through it with you. So that's a self-compassion. It looks like, you know, sometimes actually writing down, like, what do I, what do I need in this moment? What is kind or gentle or nurturing to myself? What would I want? Sometimes I have people write out because in the moment, sometimes it's hard to access. So I'll have my people, when I say my people, I mean my clients, I say my people, <laughs> but you know, I'll have them make a list of all like the things that they feel are self-compassionate or self-kind or self-nurturing or things that they need. So make a whole list, whether it's, I need a walk, I need a hug, I need food, I need nourishing food. I need to go to the beach. I need to go look at pretty things at Anthropology, which is my favorite store. And I like to go look at pretty things or I need a road trip. That's one of my needs. <laughs> sometimes I need to, sometimes San Diego, it's beautiful, but it looks kind of perfect all the time. And I need to see, my eyes need diversity. So I need, that's why I love LA. Cause I can just take a drive. I just take a road trip and just go drive around and see, you know, graffiti, graffiti and you know, just different kinds of people and the homeless people in the street and all of that. For some reason that gives me a sense of like, you know, humanity. I remember that the world is not this, sometimes San Diego can feel like I'm in, I'm in plastic because it's so perfect. 
um, it helps me kind of, so that's part of my self-kindness or self-nurturing thing that I do, but making a list of all the things that are, you know, self-nurturing or helpful to you or kind to yourself. And then I'll have them like cut them, cut, cut up the pieces of paper and just put in a jar. And then um, whenever you're having a moment and you can't access the brain, like I do sometimes where it's like, I can't, I don't know what I want. I don't know what I want. I don't know what I need. So I'm just kind of spinning, just reach into the jar and get a suggestion, like, you know, a self-kind thing that you can do for yourself. So that's just an example of a tool, having reminders in the phone to, you know, whether it's, you know, if you're, if you're making a new friend or maybe even just talking to people who are already in your life, right? Setting reminders in your phone you know, have I reached out today? When you're in that tunnel of isolation that we fall into when we're in problem solving mode, right? And we get into that tunnel, right? Being able to have reminders in your phone. Have I called somebody today? Have I reached out today? And then also having people in your life, you know, telling them if you haven't heard me for, you know, heard from me for a week, please check on me to see how I'm doing. Now that's a little vulnerable, <laughs> right? Because we want people to read our minds and know exactly what we need. This is this used to be one of mine where it's like, I want you to know what I need and do it for me. Because if I have to ask you for what I want, then it's not good enough because I, it's from me. And, you know, but you have to be able to be vulnerable and prime people and teach people how to take care of you. And then when you think about if you're feeling kind of off or anything, and I've talked about values before, but having action items for each value that you have, right? Or each strength. So I'll give you, I'll just use the values as, a, as an example, right? Sometimes, again, as I said before, when you're out of alignment with your values, it gets dark because your values light the way. According to the research, right? Your values light the way. So if you're lost or feeling disoriented, right? It means that one or more of your values are off. So for me, when I start feeling super deflated, it means at some point, I have gotten isolated, even though I love being alone. So I have this dance that I do with myself where it's like, I have high levels of introversion and extroversion. I kind of, I'm kind of like 50, 50, but the, but I present as an extrovert. And sometimes I forget that I have high levels of introversion. So I have lots of ways. To, I, I enjoy a lot of solitude and I love that. And I do a lot of things alone. But then sometimes I'm enjoying my solitude so much that I then become isolated. <laughs> so, so, so I have systems in place where it's like, okay, so here are my values for me, you know, connection, creativity, um, authenticity, service, you know, all of that stuff. Now, action items next to it. What does it look like for me to be connected? Right. So it means calling a friend, calling or texting a friend every two days or three days. Right. Making sure I get out of the texting and actually call someone or or hang out with someone to see someone. Right. Speaking my own love languages, like, you know, making sure I'm spending quality time with someone or making sure that I am giving the words of affirmation that I I want to receive, but practicing that as well. So all the things that help me feel connected to people, making a list of all of those and checking to see if, right, I'm doing any of those. If I haven't done any of those, I can tell, right? I start feeling, you know, kind of, you know, I start acting in a really weird way. <laughs> and then, you know, having the rituals for me, like my rituals are really important. So that's something I really... Another thing I really do with my people, which is, you know, 
having the daily and nightly rituals are really important. What Jonathan feels, I like how he calls them uncertainty anchors. But right when things are going crazy, having your meditation, having your morning pages, having your gratitude journal, having movement, right? All the things that help you um, master or train yourself and develop yourself mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, intuitionally, right? So that you can continue to show up and embody the things that matter to you. So there are lots of different tools that I use, but the daily nightly rituals are a big thing in my, in my space. Um, the values and habituating your values are a big thing in my space. Forms of accountability for the values that you have self-compassion and other things that I've mentioned, like really getting clear about your needs and making sure that your needs are met and having forms of accountability for making sure that those needs are met are really important. Because the thing about unmet needs is that when we have unmet needs, we find ourselves resentful and angry and we don't know why. <laughs> we don't know why. And so really getting clear about those needs, those expectations and, and making sure that they're being met is really important so that we're not walking around, you know, lashing out, resentful and mean to those around us. <laughs> yeah. And I love how practical all of your your wisdom is because it's it's immediately something that people could apply one of the things that I admire greatly about you is that you're a lifelong learner and you know, it wasn't like med school was enough for you. You've since got certification after certification. You're like a certification junkie, if I may say so. So things like resilience, wellness, personal and professional development and leadership, organizational development. I know Brene Brown is massive in your life. Um, you know, that you're a daring way facilitator, you're a dare to lead facilitator, uh, unbeatable mind coach. I mean, the list goes on and on. So what I'd love to spend the remainder of our time, I think we have about, you know, five minutes or so. I'd love to spend the remainder of our time. What are the three, I'm going to ask you to, three to five things, insights, let's call them, because this is inside out, that, that stand out the most from all of your certification work um, or other things that you've learned. I want to get like, what are the... If you had one or, or if you had three bright, shiny insights that you're like, this right here is just changed my life. And you could something from Brene or something from someone else. I'll leave, uh, I'll leave it to you. Kind of super open-ended what you think's most had a, the biggest impact on you or perhaps the biggest impact on your people, as you call them, your clients. Yeah. On me, and I see that with my clients as well, I think one of the biggest, and I've already said it a million times, the one of the biggest insights for me is that it's not enough to profess your values. It's just not enough. You have to work to embody, um, practice, live those values. And they require cultivation. It requires a lot of work, but just saying it is not enough. Like, <laughs> but it's not just not enough because like, you're saying something and doing something else because it's out of integrity. That's not the issue. It's that it is detrimental to you. It's it's it will erode and destroy your soul because you're living. You know you're professing one thing, and then you're living another. It's not just like because it's out of, out of integrity. Is that it really does erode your sense of self. You will have to numb or destroy parts of yourself to be able to live that way because it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable, it's not benign to profess values and not live them. It will destroy you. We have people who are 
just walking in autopilot and or feeling like zombies because they've had to do whatever it took to shut down parts of themselves in order to operate this way. So that's one. <laughs> the other insight for me that was a game changer was the idea that for me, again, because I'm so much about values, I have all of these values that I wear very important to me, but it was starting to value consistency as a value. It's not one of my values, but I decided to take on consistency as something that I wanted to cultivate in my life because to me, consistency, without consistency, I would not, you will not be able to embody or really do the things that you want to do in life. Like consistency to me is like one of the bedrocks, if not the bedrock <laughs> of creating the life that I want to live. And for me, as someone who came up very ADD, very scattered, very, I just had this, I was just a crazy kid. <laughs> I was all over the place. I was super smart, but I was, oh, I just had so much energy and just my mind was just all of People would always ask me what's up there. Cause I was, you know, my, I was always looking up. Right. And when I learned about consistency, it was always like this kind of boring idea. But when I started like valuing consistency and then cultivating com consistency, for me, it's a game changer. And actually, that's how I became a serial quester because I wanted to cultivate. I was like, what would it take for me to become consistent at something? So whether it was so I decided to start meditating every day and build that consistency muscle. Today's my 2,190 something day of meditation, consecutive days, but learning to build that consistency muscle, whether it's writing a haiku a day, which I did for three years, like writing what, it doesn't matter if it's a bad or a good haiku, it, gets, it will get written <laughs> and sometimes shipped, but right. So building that muscle for me, then started rippling through my life. Now, am I perfect at consistency? No, but it is a core practice for me, a core value, not my core value, but like a, a value that I cultivate to make my other values work. So it's kind of like the catalyst in a way. So that is huge for me, consistency. So space between practiced and professed values, and then consistency as something that needs to be cultivated in your life daily. And then the last one insight for me is everything spiritual. I feel like everything is spiritual. And when I say spirituality, I mean, some people say God, you know, it's that sense of connectedness to something bigger than yourself, that sense of connectedness to the universe. For me, again, in my life, just things don't make sense unless it's connected to something bigger than myself, right? There's a bigger purpose. There's a bigger sense of um, whether it's serving my community, making a difference, that sense of connection to something bigger than myself. For me, it's like, I feel like I am a vessel of the divine. And so everything I do comes from that space where it's like, in what ways can I be a vessel of love, of lights to be, you know, to, so that I can make a difference, make that impact. But even if I'm not making an, an impact, it's like, in what ways can I be available to that thing that's bigger than myself, right? In what ways can I cultivate this connection to the bigger, to the divine, to 
the unknowable mystery of it all. <laughs> so those are my three insights. So no one's ever asked me this before and it's on the spot, but yeah, those are my three insights uh, that have helped me and, and I'm using with my clients as well. Um, yeah. I love it. All of them. Fantastic. <laughs> and you know, I totally relate to consistency because I like new things. I'm, I'm always what's novel, what's going to spice things up. And so I, I struggle a little bit with, consistency because I'm always wanting to do something different. Um, but I love what you said about you had to cultivate that value, even though it's not your own value, it serves the other values. And I love that. Yvonne, so excited to have this conversation. I want to let people know where they can find you. I know the thrivingidealist.com is one place. I know you're on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Your book, Thinking About Quitting Medicine. Where else can they find you? Yvonnetour.com is my personal site, and it's pretty much where you can find a lot of my my musings and and um i'm going through a site upgrade but you, sh you should be able to see everything i've done so far i haven't really been on social media a lot lately but facebook was a place where i i like to hand hang out but i'm now working on getting out more on instagram i'm not there yet but um but I think if you go to invanator.com you'll see you'll see more like more of my space and then hopefully in the future have more access to more of the stuff that I'll be doing in the future coming up. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy. You're an inspiration and somebody who's doing amazing work by helping people who are mission driven impact the world. I mean, like how, how else can you, uh, aspire for greatness if you're not mission driven and you're making an impact on the world. So Ivana Tor, thank you so much for being on Inside Thank Out. you so much, Billy. It's been a pleasure, an absolute, absolute joy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.